Romans 12, verse 2. It says, Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture. Did you know you have a culture that you're a part of? And did you know that you're being adjusted to it? And that it is something that if we don't think about it, we're just going to become like it without even thinking. And we are part of a, a culture, a Western culture, which is big on individualism. I'm the center of the universe. The most important thing in this world is me. I'm self-sustaining self-helping, self-reliant, I'm a DIY kind of a guy, <laughs> a do-it-yourself. I'm winning when I can do it on my own, and I don't need anyone else to help. Individualism. Um, consumerism is a big part of our culture. More, 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 more. Faster, faster, bigger, bigger, better, better. Serve me in a way that is timely and convenient with plenty of options in case my schedule or what's good for me or what's cool at the time actually changes. Consumerism. Uh, materialism is a big part of our culture where our material possessions and our physical comfort, that's like the most important thing. We are a very rushed people. We're always distracted. We're always on the move. We very really slow down and breathe, and be present, and be still, and be silent. That's quite good, that was quite a good effect there. You guys did well. <laughs> yeah. uh, we value happiness and our lifestyle in this culture probably above most things. Uh, we look to the external things to fulfill that happiness, our need for happiness, no, that's what I just said, our need for happiness. <laughs> uh, when I meet that special someone, or I get married, or I have a kid, or a family, or I get that boat, or I get that promotion, or I get that holiday home, or I go traveling, like then I'll be happy, and that's, that's the most important thing. Um, and we are so immersed in our culture, that it's really, really hard for us to even recognize that we're affected by it. And actually, so often we just fit into it without even thinking. And I have a big question today that what if the way in which we follow Jesus and the life that we believe he came to give us, what if that's more a construct or a reflection of our Western culture than it is about the life talked about by Jesus and described in the scriptures. And so my message today is called Follow the Crucified, Not the Westernized Jesus. And I left my hair out today just so I could look like the westernized Jesus for you. <laughs> I almost wore a white robe, but I was like, I couldn't bring myself to do it. <laughs> you would have remembered it better. Um, we are 
just to give you some context, like we're in the middle, well, we're not in the middle, we've just started actually a series called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And um, this is part two in that. Uh, this has been an incredibly challenging series for me already. If you haven't uh, read, uh, sorry, um, listened to the podcast or you missed last week, make sure you do that and catch up about being before you do. It's really, really important, and we've been talking about these in groups. If you're not in a group, I would love to help you get in a group. Um, but follow the crucified Jesus, not the westernized Jesus. For many of us, the Jesus that we follow um, is the Jesus who comes to make my life better and more enjoyable. But if you've ever thought like that, like gone, man, like, Jesus is awesome, right? Like he's, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he can perform miracles, and like all of these things are true. And it's actually his job to just come and do those when I want um, and make my life awesome, like make it better. It's like, yep, I, I invite you into my life, Jesus. Come and have your way in my life. And uh, it's, um, it's something that we, we, like, we love the idea of a, of a Christ-centered life. Like, we love the idea of Jesus being the resurrection, um, this victorious king, um, this Jesus that takes my rubbish and my mess and the, the mess that I make of my life, and he somehow does something with it and then makes it awesome. Like, we love that part. And that is, that is true. He does all of that stuff, and it is awesome. Uh, but we can sometimes treat him as like a spiritual genie, um, where... If we just pray the right prayer, or we sing the right song, or we uh, do the right, like enough good, that things will go well for us, that things will go right, and if we rub them the right way, then um, he'll just conveniently like grant my wish, because that's what he's here for, all right? Just here to make my life better. And the problem with that type of Christianity is when things don't go to plan and when things all fall apart and when hard stuff comes up that we couldn't see and when like world pandemics hit and all the repercussions of something like that happen to us or we, um, we lose a, a loved one or somebody that we love in our community gets really, really sick. And it's like, Jesus, this isn't meant to be how it's meant to be. Like, you're meant to just come and fix this stuff, right? Which is what our culture would tell us. And again, those things are true of Jesus, and he is going to come and do that, but maybe not necessarily on our agenda or in our timetable or when we would want him to or when it's convenient for us, and maybe there's actually something more within all of this that he's trying to teach us. Uh, this isn't a new problem, though, of being like influenced by our culture, being influenced by um, the, the world around us and how that affects our faith. So if we go back to um, Jesus, his earliest followers, and he's got his 12 disciples who are walking with him and are spending time with him, they struggled with this too. So we see in Matthew 16... Verse 13 to 26. Everyone turn their Bibles. Good, 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 good. Very good. It says this. 
When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea and Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Important question. Simon Peter, one of his disciples, he answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. And so we've got this the statement that Simon makes, which we look at, and if you've been around church for a while, it's like, oh yeah, the statement of, um, you know, it's like Jesus is asking, who do you say I am? And, and Peter says, oh, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And we're like, yeah, that's right, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Yep, Jesus, the, the God, like, came from God. He was fully human, fully man. That's the same thing. Fully, fully God and fully human. Um, yeah, he was really, really man. Um, uh, and... And that sounds familiar to us, and like there might be some of us here who don't actually know what like the Messiah is. Like this, this whole environment may be new to you, or the story of Jesus may be new to you. Um, the statement that Peter makes here is in his in his day. Like this is a this is a very very weighty statement. See, to say someone is the Messiah, the Son of the Living God, the Jewish people in this context, they had been oppressed for years and years and years by different empires and rulers that had come and squashed their people. And uh, there has been promises for centuries of somebody who is going to come, this Messiah King, this anointed one from God, who is going to come and destroy and crush and set free these people from the, the slavery, from the, um, the oppression that they've had. And they've been waiting for this promised king, this promised Messiah, for centuries. And it's been prophesied all the way back from Adam and Eve, where uh, the serpent comes and deceives them, and they fall into the trap of the evil um, that, he, that, he, that the serpent, like, displays to them, and they're banished from Eden, which is this beautiful picture of God, like heaven and earth coming together, and God and man being in perfect harmony as things should. This is all destroyed, and there's a, there's a message that comes way back there, that from the, the seed of Eve, her offspring, that there'll be one that's going to come and crush the snake, and then it, it shows up again in Abraham where this God singles out this man and says, from you I'm going to make a nation that is going to bless all nations how they once were. And then from his line there's this promise through one of his great-grandchildren, Judah, who is going to, um, there's going to be a king that's going to come back from there and restore things back to how they were. And so just like time after time after time, it shows up in these scriptures over centuries and centuries that there is this Messiah coming. And these guys have been walking with Jesus for a while and they're seeing what he does and they're seeing him walk towards the sick and the hurting and the broken and he's beginning to heal them and he's beginning to bring heaven on earth in this way that is crazy. And they're like, man, who is this? And Jesus asked this of them, like some say this, some say that, but who do you say I am, Peter? And he's like, 
You're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You're the one that's been sent from God. Like, this is a weighty, weighty statement. And then Jesus replies, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because he probably didn't say it like this. You're blessed, Simon. <laughs> he probably said it way better than that. Um, <laughs> Uh, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. And I can imagine Peter like going, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've nailed it. Like, thank you, Jesus. That's good. Um, And then Jesus is like, now I say to you that you are Peter. He's like shifting his name to mean rock. And upon this rock, I'll build my church. Peter's like, yeah, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a big part of this story of this king who's coming to set us free from the oppression of the Roman Empire. I'm going to be a rock in that. I'm going to be this solid thing. (laughs) Rock. (laughs) Solid as a rock. Um, Jesus goes on and he says, I'll build my church on this and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I think like Peter in this time And the Jewish people, they have been imagining like a military, political king that's going to come and he's going to overrule this by force and by power. And he's like, man, sign me up. I get to be a part of that. And not only that, Jesus says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. And it's like his words are now going to be powerful and he's going to be able to release heaven on earth and he's going to be able to bind up things that shouldn't be. And it's like Peter, I would imagine, is like, this is awesome. This is a great Jesus to follow. It's like he's going to make my life great. He's going to come and do some amazing things. I get to be a part of it. My life is going to get better from now on. Very similar to our culture. Then it goes on in verse 21, and it says, From then on, from that point where they figured that out, that he's the Messiah, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things. You're like, uh, what? He would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law, and he would be killed. And you're like, no, 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 wait, 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 wait a minute. Let's just back up like the rock, the Peter, the, like, yeah, you know, the victorious, the case of hell won't stand against me. Like, that sounds awesome. But then, on the other hand, Jesus is like, for this to happen, I'm going to have to suffer. And I'm going to have to go through a period of suffering and trials and torture to the point where my life is taken. And so Peter, with his uh, newfound um, enthusiasm, he takes seriously the words that Jesus says about whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And he goes up to Jesus and he takes him aside, it says in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him. Which is quite funny when it's like, this is the Messiah, like this is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe, he's coming and, and he's just told Peter that he's going to be this rock and, and now he's like, ah, ah, okay, yeah, hey Jesus, uh, I actually think you're wrong. Um, do you want to just come over and have a word with me? And he steps into his new role and he says, heaven forbid. It's like, Boom. 
This will never happen to you. Have you ever like heard something or something's happened and you're like, flip, this shouldn't be happening. Like Jesus is here to make my life better. And you've gone like, you know what, in your name, Jesus, I bind that up. Like, no way. That's not going to happen. And just to make things slightly more intense, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. <laughs> it's like, wait, just a minute ago, I was like, Peter, you're the rock, you're like, you're man. You know, and now I'm, now I'm being addressed as Satan, which is taking Jesus back to a moment where he was being tempted in the wilderness before he entered into his ministry. And Satan is like laying out all the foundation, or all the kingdoms of the earth and saying, Jesus, if you just bow down to me, I'll give you all of this. Jesus knows very well that he's come to restore that. that that's all going to be given to him anyway. It's all his. But Satan's tempting him with this thing, this pathway of getting there, that doesn't involve trials and doesn't involve suffering and doesn't involve death. And so here in this moment where Peter's stepping in and like going, Jesus, Jesus, now this will never happen to you. Like heaven forbid that, Lord. He's saying, get behind me, Satan. Get away from me. You're a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. How many times have we seen things from a human point of view and not taken the time to trust God to reveal to us maybe what his point of view is? And then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my followers, you must turn from your selfish ways and take up your cross, the symbol of suffering, this Roman like execution rack that they would literally hang people on, criminals, the, the worst of the worst, and they would suffocate from their own body weight after being left there. Horrific. If any of you wants to follow me, you must take up your cross, turn from your selfish ways. And if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Now, I mean, that all sounds pretty heavy and like doom and gloom, <laughs> right? But I think this is what we need to get our heads around when we're following Jesus. When we follow the, the westernized Jesus, which is just make my life better, when things go badly, flip, it throws us. We have to deconstruct. We have to, we might even walk away from our faith. We question everything. When we're following the crucified Jesus, what happens is that we allow God to take us through when things do come our way, because Jesus said, like, you will face trials. Things will go badly for you, but I'm more powerful than that, and maybe I want to take you on a journey through that, and through that journey I'm going to build in you something that is deeper and richer and more beautiful than you would ever be able to gain than if you were to not go through that. And so what does that look like? Ellie, can we chuck up the, um, the, the slide? So we have this comparison here of the world's discipleship 
and Jesus' discipleship. The westernized discipleship, the crucified discipleship. Be popular, reject popularity, be great, reject greatnessism, greatnessism. <laughs> be successful, reject successism. That one's a little bit easy to say. Avoid suffering and failure versus embrace suffering and failure. So be popular, be popular. This is a big draw card, I think, um, for a lot of us. Um, it is something that is very subtle in our culture. It is very subtle. It, like, it lurks below the surface and informs so much of what we do in life. I know it does for me. Um, this is like a preoccupation with what other people might think of you. A preoccupation of what other people might think of you. So, for example, when we were worshipping earlier, like a bunch of you would have been there and you would have wanted to engage in the worship in a different way. You felt like there was something that, like, you wanted to respond, like, bodily to the, the words that you were singing, to maybe the things that you were feeling, the, the power of that moment. But you're like, man, if I put my hands up, or if I close my eyes, or if I lift my voice a little bit, you know what's going to happen? Everyone's just, like, going to go, Phew! look at them. Have you ever felt that? No. I've felt that. <laughs> There's others of you who are like, you're going hard and you're free and you're jumping around and you've got your hands up and you're praising and you're thinking, look at me, somebody look at me, <laughs> you know, come on, <laughs> you know, and you're hoping that somebody will notice you and just see how free you are, so much freer than you. <laughs> and then there's others of you who are like going, looking around the room like going, he's faking it. <laughs> look at her, I bet she doesn't actually mean that and you're cynical, and you're probably just really afraid. You really want that freedom, but you're deep down, like, you're, you're really afraid of what people will think of you. It shows up in other ways, where, um, like, I've got my Bible, which I bring every week, and I come and sit down and sit next to one of the pastors or something, and uh, it'll come to that time where it's like, oh, we're, we're reading from here, and I, I open it, and then look over at Joel's Bible and it's like, it's all highlighted and there's like underlines and there's hearts and there's notes and everything. And I'm like, oh, I haven't really got to that part. Uh. <laughs> but then, then you're kind of stuck because you can't close it because then you're like not doing the thing that you think you're meant to be doing and all of that. And so it's like, what do I do? <laughs> um, but there's little things like this that show up all the time. And, and obviously like it, those are just some silly examples, but there is a, a real weight um, and a real heaviness that can come and lurk under the surface and in our insecurities where we're like, man, um, like what, what popularity does or the, the, the desire to be popular when you care about what other people think is it, it does a couple of things. Like it changes how you act around people and then it also like stops you from acting sometimes in a certain way that you know you should act like that. And you can find yourself in school, at university, you can find yourself at parties, you can find yourself in conversations where you're being pressured to do something that if you don't do it, man, you might, you might get laughed at, you might get rejected, you might get mocked, you might get bullied, and it can be heavy, right? But Jesus here, and to follow like the crucified Jesus, is he's not criticizing like the desire to, to be popular and he's not 
he's not saying that that's bad, but he does redirect it. And he's saying, don't worry about what they think. Just worry about what your heavenly Father thinks. Because all of us, one day, we will stand at the foot of Jesus and we'd have to give an account for our life of what we did with the things that he gave us, what we did with his sacrifice. And I don't know about you, but like I'm really keen to hear those words, like, well done, good and faithful servant. Like, you stuck it out. You didn't worry about what they thought. You just worried about what I thought. Like in worship, we sometimes want to worship God in the way that's just, you know, like when we're vibing it, or just how we think we should, but we forget that the one being worshipped is the one who gets to decide how he's worshipped, <laughs> and he's actually got an opinion about that, and there's, there's a whole lot of stuff about how we should worship in terms of our expression. I'm not just talking about here, but there's all sorts of things that he talks about. Like singing is one, dancing, shouting out loud, just lying flat down, like face down on the floor, kneeling, clapping, shouting. Like these, these things, even though like you may be um, at a different place to, to somebody else, but um, we should be growing in our expression of these and seeking to understand how the one who's being worshipped wants to be worshipped and not worrying about what the person next to us might think. And so I, I just want to throw that out there like as a, as a challenge. Well done, good and faithful servant. The next one, be great, reject, and versus rejecting greatness-ism. Um, this is a funny one, like, because God calls us to great things. Like Jesus here saying to Peter, he's like, Peter, you are a rock. You're going to be a significant part in my kingdom. And I'm going to build my church on you. But the motivation behind that for Peter is really, 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 really crucial. And we can seek to build a big ministry and we can seek to build a great business and we can seek to build um, like a great life where we can um, give lots of money away or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But the motivation is extremely, extremely important because are we trying to do great things to fulfill like a need that's in us? Are we trying to build something for ourselves? Are we trying to prove something? Maybe we're trying to be great so that we can squash the pain of somebody telling us that we're not. Maybe you felt worthless and you need to prove that, no, I've, I can do something. There's this desire to be great. But Jesus said that in Matthew 23, verse 11, he said, the greatest among you must be a servant, must serve others. So rather than being great to serve yourself and whatever that may look like, we're going to be great to serve others. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. To follow the crucified Jesus is is a way of humility. It's a way of laying our life down for another. It's a way of being great for his kingdom, not our own kingdom. The next one, be successful. I think like in our culture's eyes, like lifestyle, like when we've got the right boat and we've got the the holiday home and when we've traveled lots and when we've 
had early retirement and uh, we've got the, the toys and the active wear and the prosperity <laughs> and the, the health and the wealth. It's like, man, we're, we're successful. We're successful and we strive to be successful and we work our behinds off to, to get to that success. And again, there's nothing wrong with those things. Those things are awesome. I have many of those things. I don't really have active wear, but, um, but hey, come on. Should have preached an active wear. That would have been memorable. Um, but Jesus, he again, he re- redefines what success is. And I think this is a great definition. Success is becoming the person God calls you to be, to become... I paused in a really weird moment, and that didn't make sense. I'm going to read it again. Success is becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in a way, in his way, and according to his timetable. Success is becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way, not our way, in his way, and according to his timetable, in his timing, not our timing. If we're trying to push to be successful and we're trying to, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be like um, material things, like even this, this emotionally healthy discipleship, like I, I oversee all the small groups and we're like, yes, 80 groups, that's awesome, like that's successful, that's great, but I need to keep a check in me when I'm talking with other pastors and with other small group um, people in other churches, I need to be like have a really big check in me of like going, well, you know, yeah, we just, we're just 80 groups, you know, whatever. Yeah, how many how many you got? Oh, 20, oh, yeah, yeah sweet. Um, like there's, there's something lurking below the surface that is often left unchecked, and we need to check those things. If we're constantly striving to be successful, it can lead us to the next one where we avoid failure and suffering, and we don't want things to go wrong instead of embracing failure and suffering. When I was, uh, I was going to say when I was younger, it wasn't that long ago. Um, recently, <laughs> we'll go with that. Now, a, a few years ago, like I, I, have a, I have a nine-year-old girl and I have a five-year-old, not a five-year-old, oh my gosh. Third gathering, come on. Um, I have a... She's 10 now. She just turned 10. Yeah. <laughs> Holy moly. <laughs> it was her birthday on Sunday last weekend. All right. I have a 10-year-old. How the heck did that happen? And I have a... I know how that happened. I have a... Um, <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> the filter has gone. The filter has gone. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> yeah. I have a 10-year-old and I have a 2-year-old. There is a, a big gap between them, obviously. That was a really, really long journey. Um, for for Marion and I to uh, to have children, it was a yeah, it was it was a it was a hard journey. Um, we spent like about three years uh, not being able to conceive and have um, my girl Nina. It was an absolute miracle when that happened. Um, we were keen to have another baby, and for the next five years, 
uh, we went through, um, yeah, like a, a journey of like lots of prayer because it wasn't happening, lots of prayer, um, amazing faithful people praying for us. But you think those things are like, man, like why is why is this happening? Like Jesus, you meant to make my life better and more enjoyable. Like these things, like why haven't you broken through yet? And then we finally, Mary gets pregnant and it's like, it's amazing and everything's going great and we go in for our first scan and the the nurses um, she's doing the ultrasound and she's like there's the hand and there's the da, 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 da. I don't think they have hands that old um, but she she like kind of her, her whole demeanor kind of changed a bit and she was like oh I was like what does it oh mean you know it's like that moment of like oh boy what's coming and she's like I'm, I'm really sorry to say like we can't find a heartbeat and I was like fluff and I remember like sitting in that room like just the world kind of come crashing down and like oh man this this is heavy it's not meant to be like this and um, and then yeah like a, a little while later we um, we journeyed through that and then Marin conceived again and then same thing happened and it was like it was heartbreaking you know but one of the things that God did for us through that journey is that he took us on as we as we embraced that season and we tried not to um, question the goodness of God because I've seen God move in my life all through my life I had enough understanding of who he was that I could trust him um, that was the hardest thing that I had to trust him with but through that season what God did is he grew something in us like he taught us to have joy in the midst of sorrow he taught us to rely on others to help carry us to pray for us to journey with us through that whole season my daughter's Madeline who's, who's two like her middle name is Joy because it's something that he taught us through that time And we, like in a, in a weird way, like I'm thankful for the journey that we went on, not just because of what it did in us, but because of now how we can help others as well and how we can speak into their lives. And that would never have happened without us embracing this difficult kind of weird thing of suffering and pain and failure and disappointment and all of that and just trusting God through the midst of it all and I I look at the life of Jesus the king of the universe the one who spoke the world into being and he comes as this humble vulnerable little baby born in the back of nowhere in a barn in a manger which is like a food trough for animals like the king of of the universe, the one that has come to set everyone free from the oppressive darkness that is all around us. And I think like, man, what a what a crazy head trip that is. And I just know that God wants to encourage you that whatever you're going through that he is trustworthy 
that He will take whatever it is and He will walk with you through it and that He will build something in you that you're going to be grateful for one day. And I don't say that to like, you know, like, you'll be fine. It's, it's not that. It's like He's going to do something powerful in you and through you. And it just takes us to embrace the season that we're in, embrace the suffering, and allow God to move in that area.